Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. Thank you for joining us. Sorry for the delay. Still trying to figure out the uh, technology. I want to thank our sponsors for uh, the series, Parsha series for the entire year, our dear friends Becky and Avi Katz and family. In memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, a very special man. Uh, Nishmas, David Manish, our learning of Parshios 2, Bahar and Bechukosai this morning should be Le'ilu Nishmaso, should serve to elevate his beautiful soul. We have the privilege, as I said, of uh, learning two Parshios today, Bahar and Bechukosai. We'll see how far we get. A lot of uh, thoughts, a lot of ideas we want to get through in uh, both. Um, and with it, we'll end the book of Vayikra, Torah's Kohanim, the story of the laws of the Kohanim. And uh, it's hard to believe that this is the second Chazak that we're saying in quarantine, the second book that we're finishing without hearing Kriyas Torah together. It's hard to believe. Unfortunately, it's painful to believe. And yet is the reality that we are uh, confronted with. Parshas Bahar is in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash on page 696. And the Parsha begins, Vaydaber Hashem HaMoshe Eleymor, Vaydaber Hashem HaMoshe, Behar Sinai Eleymor, God spoke to Moshe at Har Sinai. And so on. And then it proceeds to tell us the laws of Shemitah. When you enter the land, six years you work, the seventh year is a sabbatical, the seventh year you rest, and so on and so forth. And of course, the question is begged. As Rashi quotes, what in the world does Shemitah, the opening law of this week's Pasha, what does it have to do with Harsinai? In fact, all of Torah and mitzvahs were given at Sinai. So why is Shemitah singled out here? Why is Shemitah isolated that this was given Bahar Sinai as opposed to as opposed to the other mitzvahs? Ella Sarashi concludes, just as Shemitah, its general law, its general theme, its general essence and idea, as well as its particulars and details, were all given at Sinai. So just as Shemitah, what we're going to law, what we're going to learn, all of the big picture of Shemitah, as well as the details of Shemitah, it was all given at Har Sinai. So to all law, is given at is given at Har Sinai. The Imre Chaim, the Vishnu Tzarebbe, says there's something more going on here, and it's telling us the following. He doesn't say this at the beginning of Parshas Bahar. He says it at the very end of Parshas Bechukosai, where the Torah ends the book of Vayikra by invoking again the image of Har Sinai. These are the mitzvahs that God commanded Moshe to communicate and transmit to the Jewish people. Where at Har Sinai. So Parsha's Bahar opens with Har Sinai. Parsha's Bechukosai ends with Har Sinai. It's as if it's two bookends that uh, capture our two Parshios. So why? Why the emphasis on Har Sinai here when the truth is all Torah was given at Har Sinai? So the Imre Chaim says the following. The Vishnu Tzarebbe says, Har Sinai merames al anava, chazal tziva loshon hischabrus. Har Sinai reflects the notion of modesty, of humility. And that is a prerequisite to receiving the Torah. The arrogant, egotistical person who thinks they have all the answers and thinks that they have all the explanations and thinks that they can micromanage and is in a power struggle with the Almighty can't receive Torah. To truly receive Torah and have Torah be impressed upon our hearts, we have to be a tabla rasa, a blank slate. And Torah has to shape and mold our perspective, our hashkafa, our impressions. But a person who's arrogant and egotistical, who thinks the Torah should conform to what they believe, 
cannot authentically and genuinely receive Torah. And therefore the prerequisite to receiving Torah and to observing mitzvahs for that matter is the capacity to practice humility, to understand makir es makomo, to see our place in our place in the world. So Harsinai is a hint to Anava, as Chazal say, Ela mitzvos asher tziva Hashem, tziva is his chabrus. Ela mitzvos hainu Torah kadosha asher tziva Hashem abnei Yisrael lachaber kuchabricha v'araisa v'Yisrael. The purpose of mitzvos and Torah is tzivoi mitzvos to be mitzaveh to be mitzaveh is his chabrus. It means a connection, a bond. It means the Jewish people and Hashem are connected. How? Through his mitzvahs. The truth is, in every area, in every arena of our lives, in all of our relationships, husband, wife, parents, and children, friends, colleagues, in every area of our lives, when we ask something of the other and they're willing to meet and fill, and fill that need of ours, that creates connection. When a spouse asks of another spouse, do you mind, would you, can you please, and each is compromising and giving to one another, that is exactly what creates a sense of connection, a bond between the two. So tzivoy, not in the form of a command, I demand you, I, I coerce you, or I force you. But tziva means here's my need, here's my request, here's what I'm asking of you. And your willingness to fulfill it is what creates the sense of a hischabrus. When are you willing to fulfill it? When you're willing to suppress, or when you're willing to minimize, or when you're willing to uh, compromise, concede your need, or your control, or your power. So implicit within Siva and his chabras, the notion of a command of responding that yields a sense of connection, implicit in there is the humility, the anivas, that's represented by Harsinai. El Bnei Yisrael, hakola yedei Harsinai aydei anava. Nimshel alamayim sheyeredes lamokom namoch, kemamar chazal, hashros hashchinak doshe gamken aydei anava. Just like water flows to the lowest common denominator, Torah is likened to water. We couldn't go three days in the desert without water. We can't go three days without, we can't listen to Torah, but without learning Torah. And just as water flows down, so too Torah flows down. If we think we are above, superior to Torah, it doesn't flow up towards us. But the vision of the Rebbe the Rechaim goes a little bit further. And he says, in fact, that is all included in the word Har. Har Sinai, or rather in the word Sinai. Har Sinai actually communicates this tension, this balance between two separate themes. And listen to this other section. Ahar, a mountain, actually reflects uh, haughtiness, feeling elevated, superior. You climb the mountain, you ascend the mountain. The mountain is high, the mountain has a peak, the mountain is, uh, is above. Sinai, we all know, we are taught as children, that Har Sinai, why did Har Sinai merit? that the Torah was transmitted on it, because Harsinai is the lowest of all the mountains. Every other mountain said, give it on me. I'm tall, and I'm broad, and I'm large, and I'm impressive. And Harsinai said, eh, I'm just a modest little mountain. And therefore, Kodesh Baruch Hu said, that modesty, that humility of Sinai, therefore earned it. It's hinted to an anava. Sometimes we have to know when it comes to the mitzvah Hashem, sometimes we have to act with humility. Sometimes we have to carry ourselves with modesty. And other times the person has to have a shtickle gaiva. When do you have a shtickle gaiva? When is there ever room for arrogance? 
So, when we have to realize that it's pasnish, it's beneath us to speak a certain way, or act a certain way, or dress a certain way. That's not arrogance, it's confidence. So, the Jewish people, our mission and mandate is to find that balance between confidence, not arrogance, but to know that we are b'nei malachim. We are the children of royalty, we're princes and princesses us. Certain behavior is beneath us, it's pasnish. We have to have a certain sense of gaiva, of pride on the one hand, and you have to have anivus on the other. And therefore the Torah was given on Har Sinai, just like Shemitah was given on Har Sinai, so too the whole Torah was given on Har Sinai. What does it mean the Torah is given on Har Sinai? It means the Torah was given in that space, in the balance between sometimes feeling with a har, sometimes feeling that we have to know who we are, and what is beneath us, and sometimes feeling like a Sinai, realizing we're the lowest of all the mountains, and therefore we have to carry and practice ourselves with a little humility. The Menachem Tzion Pirkei Avos says, this is the meaning of the opening mission of Pirkei Avos, that, to, that it says, Moshe Kibal Torah Misinai, Yoshua, Moshe received the Torah at our Sinai, he gave it to Yoshua, Yoshua to the Canaan, and so on and so forth. Shouldn't the Mishnah say, Moshe Kibal Torah Bisinai, Moshe received the Torah at or on Har Sinai. Why does it say Moshe to keep out Torah mi Sinai? He received the Torah from Sinai. Says from Menachem Ben Zion Zaks in his Menachem Zion and Perkei Avos, because what it means is Moshe understood that just like Har Sinai merited to accurately and authentically receive Torah, Dafka because of its humility, Moshe understood, and Moshe was Anav Mikol Adam, he was the most humble of all men. Moshe understood that the prerequisite to accurately and authentically receiving Torah is practicing humility and modesty. He didn't just receive the Torah at Har Sinai, a geographic location. The mission is not just telling us the coordinates of where the Torah was given, but Moshe Kibel Torah mi Sinai, he received the Torah of Sinai, namely the lesson of practicing humility. So this very opening Pasuk, and Rashi asking, what does one thing have to do with the other? That just as it was all given on Har Sinai, with Shemitah, so to the details of all Torah and mitzvahs come from Har Sinai, is a reminder to us as the vision of Tzarebbe of this balance between Har and Sinai. We should see ourselves as great, as worthy, as capable, as confident, as the children of Hashem, that it's pasnished to not observe Torah and mitzvahs is beneath us. On the one hand, we're a Har, and on the other hand, we're a Sinai. We have to learn that lesson and practice that sense of humility. What is this mitzvah of? What is this mitzvah of uh, Shemitah? What is this mitzvah given to us? When you come to the land, when you come to that land and you uh, conquer and acquire that land that I'm giving you, the land needs to observe Shabbos. We keep Shabbos. We count six days. Six days we work. Work is not a concession. In Judaism, work is a value, it is an ideal. We'll get to that at the beginning of Bechukosai. Shetiu Amelim Batora. The notion of Amelus, of toil, of work, of effort, that process is not just a concession. It's not really, I want the result. I wish I could be born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I wish I won the lottery. I wish others would support and provide me. Really, I want the result. I have to do the work. If nobody wrote me the check, if nobody supports me, if I don't have the silver spoon in my mouth, what can I do? I have to get up and work. No. 
even if you have privilege in your life, nevertheless, work is not a concession. Judaism work is a value. Work is an ideal, and I dare say, work is a mitzvah. It is a noble, righteous, and religious activity. That a person has to exert and express and go conquer the world, understand it, learn it, manipulate it, maneuver it, and conquer that world. However, as much as we are uh, mandated and as much as our mission is to mold and shape Hashem's world, to repair it, to improve it, to interact, to engage it, nevertheless, we also have to know when we are when we're done, when we need to rest, when the land needs to rest, and when we need to rest. And that is the essence of Shemitah. We'll get to it in a moment. But the Pasuk introduces it by saying, Ki when you enter the land, and which land? Asher no sein lachem. It is the land that I am giving you. And Rav Nachman of Breslov, the Heliga Breslov, wonders, why does it say, Asher no sein lachem? Why does it say the land I'm giving you? What should it say? Asher nasati lachem. This is the land that I have given you. Hashem made a promise to Avram, the Brisbane Abbasarim. He told him, I'm giving you this land. And Siddur snippets, we're up to Vayivarach, David the second half, Atahu Hashem, and we're learning, Becharosim Bris. Hashem made a bris with Avram, and he gave him the land of the, of the, all the uh, nations that were living, the Canaanite nations living on that land. Hashem expelled them, Vahakimosi Osam. He fulfilled his promise to Avram, he fulfilled that bris. Ah, isn't it stealing it from those other nations who had been dwelling there? The answer is the opening Rashi on all of Chum. Hashem created the whole world, it's His, and He allocated that land for us from the very beginning of time. They were living there temporarily, they were essentially squatters, and it was time for us to take that land back. The Harosim Abris, Hashem made a covenant with Avram. So if He made the covenant with Avram, shouldn't the Pasuk say, Asher Nasati Lachem, when you enter the land I've given you. Why does it say, Asher Ani Nosein Lachem? We're reading this in 2020, in Tav Shin Pei. Why are we still reading Asher Nosein Lachem? And the Heliga Breslover of Nachman says the following most beautiful idea. He says, Bechol Yom, when a Jew walks in Israel, when a Jew merits to live in Israel, visit Israel, please God, soon in our time, Bechol Yom, who margish b'ta'amim chadashim ne'imim ba'aravim, A person needs to feel the sweetness, taste the beauty, receive the bracha, each day it's sweeter, each day it's more pleasant than the day before. And therefore, a person never, ever takes Eretz Yisrael for granted, ever. It's not the land Asher Nasati, ah, he gave it to us. 1948, the Six-Day War, Yom Kippur War, ah, we fought our wars, it's ours, it's ours forever, and therefore it's Nasati, it's given to us, and we can take it for granted. Says Rav Nachman, that this parsha is introducing us to the notion that when you enter that land, the mentality, the perspective that you have to maintain is, Asher Nosein Lachem, that every day it's as if he's given it again. Never take it for granted, never assume it will continue to be there, always live it, the miracle that it is, and realize, Asher Nosein he continues to give it to us and to provide us that enormous, incredible bracha each and every day. We recently recognized that when we celebrated Yom Atzimut. Soon we'll be celebrating Yom Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim ira kodesh is near not, not nasati, I gave it. It's Asherani nosein, to continue to feel it's being given with love, with affection, with sweetness and pleasantness each and every day, and more and more each and every, each and every day. We continue. Six years you plant, six years you plant your vineyard, and then you gather your produce. And on the seventh year, it of course is a sabbatical year. 
and your field you can't plant, and your vineyard you have to uh, lay fallow. It's very interesting to note, very important to note, that the Torah here is employing the very same language for Shemitah that it does for Shabbos. Sabbatical is the sabbatical of the yearly cycle. The Shabbos is of the weekly cycle of days, and of course Shemitah is of the yearly cycle, and its goal is to accomplish the very same thing, to be able to step back and to realize what is ours, what's not ours, what are we in control of, and what are we not in control of. The Torah here calls Shemitah Shabbos, Shabbason. And here Rabbi Soloveitchik in the Rav Chumash writes the following. The idea behind Shemitah and Yobo is that man does not truly own anything. The use of the term Shabbos for both the seventh day and for the seventh year is not coincidental. What is the common motif? To keep Shabbos is to bear witness that Hashem is the creator. Man professes faith he is the, not, he is the creator, not in the homiletical sense, but in the halachic terms. A Shabbos violator is considered a mumar l'chol Torah, one who's violated the entire Torah because he denies the authority of Hashem over creation. The same motif applies to Shemitah. It is a restoration of the authority of Hashem and the proclamation of God as the creator and the maker. The prohibition of 39 forbidden categories of work involve an extension of one's authority through productive work. Shabbos violation includes only malachas machsheves, intentional actions that result in constructive work. Mekalkel, destructive acts are permitted. They don't demonstrate authority. Shemitah is referred to as a Shabbos because like Shabbos, it's a day of surrender. Shabbos, Shemitah, and Yovel all involve the surrender of authority to the true owner. So six days, go, study, learn, conquer, manipulate, invent, innovate, entrepreneurship, control the world. And then lest you think you're really in control, lest you think that you really invented and created it all, it is so incredibly important to every now and then rest, to refrain, to abstain, where act, 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 and then be passive. Be at peace with nature. Stop trying to control and manipulate it. Realize that it and we all serve the same master, namely Hashem. It is all His, and He is the one in control. So essentially what Rabbi Salavei here is saying, and what all the Mephoshim elaborate on, is that Shemitah is an exercise in emuna. The whole essence of Shemitah is an exercise in emuna. It's what it's really all about. It's what we're trying to achieve. An exercise in emuna. The ability to be submissive, the ability to be passive. And perhaps this is another explanation of the connection between Shemitah and Har Sinai. The Rechaim HaKadosh here asks, how did Rashi answer his question? Rashi asked, What is the connection between Shemitah and Har Sinai? And then Rashi answers, It's the model or the archetype of all mitzvos. Just like our parsha continues by giving a broad principle, specific details of the mitzvah, the principles and details of all mitzvos were given at Har Sinai. Asked the Rachaim, How did he answer the question? Shemitah is the model of a mitzvah, his principles and details are given. But the question was, Why is Shemitah chosen as the model, as the example, as the archetype or prototype? And he didn't answer that. He didn't answer that. So the Rachaim gives an answer to how Rashi did answer, but I want to suggest to you a different answer to you this morning. By a show of hands, and you can't really, I don't see everyone simultaneously, how many people here have been to the, the Kotel, the Kosel, to the base of Harabayat, on Harabayat, whatever you call it? How many have been there? Probably almost all of us, if not us all. How many have been to Har Sinai? I'm going to guess none of you. We're not even exactly sure where Har Sinai is, Josephus and other Jewish sources identify it with some location in northwestern Arabia, east of the Red Sea. Others say it's in the Sinai Peninsula. We're not even sure exactly where Har Sinai is, let alone is it a major tourist location of the Jewish people or of any people. So here you have Harabayas, 
You have the Kotel we all go to. You can't go on a trip to Israel. You can't make it through your first day there without making it to the Kotel. And Harsinai, where the Torah was given, and we're not even sure exactly where it is. Why is that? So there's a fundamental difference between the two. Basalavechik explained that one of these mountains retained its sacred status permanently, and the other was only temporary. Why? Rabbi Salavitchik explained that Kedusha, Kedusha sanctity, is not a function of a geographic location, but rather Kedusha is the result of human input, of human service, of human endeavor, of human commitment, of human effort. Kedusha doesn't come upon us. Kedusha, we have to begin with acts of Kedusha, which we'll explain in a moment with Shabbos. Harsinai was only sanctified with temporary sanctity only as long as Hashem was there, because Harsinai was top-down, and Harbaiis is bottom-up. Harabayas is a place of avoda. We go there for service, we go there for worship, we go there to act, we go there to do. We give, we do. Harsinai is top-down. Hashem bestowed, He gave, He gifted the Torah to us. We were passive spectators, essentially. And therefore, Harsinai reflects the notion of being able to be submissive, of passive. And maybe that's the connection between Shemitah and Harsinai. For six years, we go to Har Habayis. We work, we make effort, we toil, we do, we're of service. But the seventh year, we return to Harsinai, passive and submissive. And we recognize that it's top down with Amuna, it all comes from Hashem. Maybe that is a connection of the theme of Shemitah and Harsinai, this duality, sometimes top down, sometimes bottom up. Shemitah and Harsinai have this beautiful connection together. So Shemitah is an exercise in humility. It's an exercise in Amuna. In that seventh year, you can't work. In that seventh year, you're not padding your pocket. In that seventh year, you're literally relying exclusively on the Ribbono Shalom, on Hashem. I've been, uh, I've been quoting to you a beautiful sefer, Eish Tamid, which is Rabbi Yisrael Druk, a great Rosh Hashiva in Yerushalayim, Ira Kodesh. He uh, gave me beautifully inscribed this beautiful set of Sfarim, which really has magnificent insights in Divrei Torah. And here he talks about the following. Again, why is Shemitah the one that's chosen? He is bothered by the same question as the Orachayim. Rashi asked, what does Shemitah have to do with Harsinai? And when he said, just like its details and principles are all from Harsinai, so too all mitzvahs. So, but why was Shemitah the one chosen to teach us that lesson? Why not any of the other 612 mitzvahs in the Torah to say, just like its details and principles, so too all Torah and mitzvahs? So listen to what he says. Am Yisrael Chazal, our rabbis teach us in the Medrash, Lo nitna Torah el ochle haman. The Torah was only given to those who eat man. What is it about the fact that they lived off the man, the man descended from heaven, that made them positioned best and most eligible to receive the Torah? Tzorach Lomar, so he says that the answer is the following. Dor hamidbar chayu be'amuna pshuta. Shekol ha'aret shal ha'kodesh baruchu lo yalahem. Lo'ol malachav lo'ol parnasam ak yeshu kol ha'yom va'atzku b'torah shekiblu misinai. Raka yidei amuna pshuta zeh nitan lumo Torah la'avina karoi lo'loshum daigos v'tirdos azman. The most authentic way to learn Torah is to realize the whole world is Hashem. Whatever I have comes from Him. He provides, He gives, He sustains, He gives what we need, no more and no less. 
And then you're ready to receive the Torah. When you're competing with Hashem, when there's a power struggle with Hashem, then there's not enough room for you both. You can't accurately or authentically receive or learn or live His Torah. So what does it mean the Torah was given to the Ochle Ammon? It means those who lived off the Mon in the Midbar, they knew. They knew that it wasn't their Parnasa. They knew it wasn't their genius, their innovation, their entrepreneurship. They knew it was all from Hashem. So only the Ochle Ammon, only those who have a mentality that whatever I have comes from above. He is in charge. He is in control. I am utterly and entirely reliant and dependent on Him. Only those with the mentality and attitude of Ochle Haman can truly receive the Torah. And that's what he says is the connection between Shemitah and Harsinai. Because what happens in that year of Shemitah? What do you live off of? You're back to having the status of the Ochle Haman. In that year of Shemitah, when you can't work your field and you can't draw in your income and Parnassah, but you're utterly and uh, entirely relying and dependent on Hashem, you're back to the status. It's a throwback to the Midbar, to having the status of the Ochle Amon. So just like Chazal said to begin with, Lo nitna Torah so too with Shemitah. You're back to having the status of being Ochle Amon. You can't draw income. You don't know where your next paycheck's coming from. You're relying on and you're turning to and you're depending on Hashem. And now you're ready to receive the Torah. And that's why Shemitah was chosen as this paradigm from which to derive this lesson and this law. And then he goes on and he explains, I think so beautifully, this is the connection to the continuation of the, of the Parsha, he says. What happens in the continuation of the Parsha? After Shemitah, we have the laws of Ribbis. After Shemitah, we have the laws of how we lend. Of how we lend. So, in the Jubilee 50th year, land returns to its rightful owner, its ancestral owner. And then we're introduced to this law that you're not allowed to extort your fellow when you're selling. Uh, you're not allowed to overcharge. And it's, it's interspersed there all of a sudden in the middle of this law. So what in the world is that doing here? And then we get into the law of ribis, of charging with interest. What are these financial, business, interpersonal, commerce laws doing right with Shemitah and with Yovah? What does one thing have to do with the other? So listen to what Rav Druk says. He says, if the whole essence of Shemitah is an exercise in Amuna to realize that what we have comes from Hashem, that it takes us back to when we were included and characterized as the Ochle Haman. It takes us back to a time when we realize that it all comes from Hashem. If you realize it all comes from Hashem, then you'll earn your income ethically and morally and honesty and with integrity. You're not going to extort and you're not going to overcharge and you're not going to pressure and charge interest to another. But rather, you'll do all your business dealings with honesty. If you live with Amuna, and you know that what you have, you're meant to receive. And you know that you can't, no matter what you do, get more. And you're not going to have less. That what you have is what's been determined is best for you from above. Then you're not going to cross the line uh, morally, ethically, when it comes to business matters. And that's the connection between the laws. That's why they appear here in succession and even interspersed. Lo lechinam, he says, Ha'she'ela rishon adam adam It's not a coincidence. The first question, Question we're asked when we come upstairs. Did we do our business dealings with faith, with integrity, with honesty? He says, Why is that the first question we're asked when we come upstairs? 
Maybe I'll turn to Hashem and I'll say, look, I had an enormous Yitzhahara to report inaccurately on my income taxes. I took things as business expenses that weren't, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when it came to Yad 612, psh, I gave stuck, I daven bekavana, I had the longest Shemona Esrei, I was the most scrupulous when it came to the laws of Kashras. I was so vigilant in every other area. Hashem, what are you harping on the business and the taxes and the interpersonal and, the, and how I marketed and did I promise and over-deliver, under-deliver? That's just one area of halacha. Why is that the first question? Says Rav Druk, because that question says everything about your amuna in Hashem. If you're dishonest in business, if you have a taivas amamo, and if your drive for money is so great that it clouds your judgment that you act dishonestly in business, not only have you harmed and injured your fellow man, but you've actually compromised and corrupted your very self, your character. You've revealed your lack of faith in Hashem. The one who has faith in Hashem, it's not separate. Religion and interpersonal relationships. You can't be righteous in shul and then cutthroat and ruthless at work. It's all connected. It's all a reflection of your righteousness. It's all part of your religious character and identity. Not only because a religious personality is ethical and honest, but it means you have no amuna in Hashem if you're willing to cross lines and if you're willing to uh, push boundaries. Uh, you have no faith that Hashem gives exactly what we need and that Hashem gives exactly what we exactly what we deserve. Okay, continuing. Back to Perak Hafei Pasuk So the Torah warns, the Torah worries. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Hashem here just said, forced sabbatical. Forced sabbatical. To a degree, those of us quarantining whose lives are turned upside down, we're still working. But for me, these uh, Shabbases have been Shabbases uh, of sabbatical. I've tasted what it's like to be a regular Jew, to experience a Shabbos. You need a, you need a sabbatical. You need to return to your roots and restore and re-energize and rejuvenate not just the land, but our souls with a sense of emuna and a sense of spirituality and a sense of ruchnius. But there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of people with this forced sabbatical who are furloughed, who've been laid off. Look at the unemployment numbers. And therefore, what's going to happen? The Pasuk tells us, Perach HaFei Pasuk test, top of page 700. What's going to happen? You're going to say, what am I going to eat in the seventh year? It's a lovely idea. Exercise in humility, exercise in faith and amuna. Lovely idea. Who's covering my sabbatical? Is it a paid sabbatical or an unpaid sabbatical? How am I going to pay the mortgage? What am I going to have to eat? I'm not working the land. It's not going to produce for me. So the Torah says, don't worry, because the sixth year is going to provide enough for the sixth, seventh, and eighth years. So you're worried what you'll eat in the eighth, seventh year. Know that if you observe Shemitah properly, if you have an attitude of Shemitah that's proper, you'll grow enough in the sixth year to provide the sixth, seventh, and eighth year. By the way, Aisha Torah Discovery Program, they always point out, this is one of the pieces of evidence you can decide whether it's compelling or not, that the Torah is written by God, not man. Why? Because if a man or group of people, group of men, were to sit down and author a religious document, would they make such a promise that they couldn't deliver on? Who would make such a promise? Only one who could deliver. Only one who could make it come true. Otherwise, your religion would last one year, and, or six years, and the first sabbatical, the first sixth year you encounter, where it didn't produce enough for the sixth, seventh, and eighth years, that would be the end of your religion. Perhaps this is evidence for the divine authorship of the, of the Torah. But what is, who is exactly saying this? Who's saying this? And if you'll say, what will we eat in the seventh year? 
Who's the if you'll say, Vechitomru, when you'll say, if you'll say, who's the one who's saying this? So the Svarno, you got to look here at the Svarno again, Perachafei Pasuk Yates. I hope you're looking here inside with me. Those who pushed me to come back to the to the Mikros Gedolos and to look inside. So the Svarno says, Vechitomru manochal, kasher yesupak ze etzlachem, velo tivtuchu maat maspik be'echuso. Says the Svarno, you know who we're talking about? You'll have enough. But are you mistapik b'muat? Is what you have enough? V'chi somru, you're going to say, I'm used to lavish smorgasbergs. I'm used to endless buffets. I'm used to unlimited options. And the seventh year, all I have is a little bit. I'm sustaining and surviving. I'm very modest. So the Svarno says, the group who are asking this, it's because they're challenged in the area of being mistapik b'muat. Can they be satisfied with what they have? Or are they going to always crave more? If you look at Rashi, skip to Perchavah Pasuk Hei. In the Torah, there are promises. In the beginning of Parshat Bechukosai, before we get to the Tochacha, the Torah in the Brachos promises. You're going to eat bread to satisfaction till you're sated. And you're going to live with betach, with bitachon, with security in your in your land. Rashi says, You're going to eat very little, but it's going to take little to satisfy you. Why is Rashi interpreting the Pasuk that way? It says, You're going to eat as much bread as you want. may not be good for you, all those carbs, but you're going to eat as much bread as you want. You know, uh, the Israeli breakfast at the hotel, you have 17 kinds of breads, and you cut them, and they're piping hot, and they're delicious. That's my image. That's what I picture. When you have every type of bread and hot pita and all the kinds of... What do you mean? Why is Rashi interpreting? It means that you're going to eat a little bit, but it's going to fill your belly. You're going to feel like you're satisfied from that little bit. And some of the uh, Bali Musar explain, because Rashi is telling us, that the greatest bracha is not the ability to indulge. The greatest bracha is not the ability to stuff your face. The greatest bracha is that even the small amount will satisfy you. The greatest bracha is that even you'll be mistapek b'mua. So that is the criticism here, and that is the bracha later. That our aspiration is not to have an endless amount, but is to be satisfied even with a smaller or more modest amount. That is how the Sforno interprets this, interprets this pasuk. The Ramban understands it a little bit differently. The Ramban says, V'chi somru, it means not V'chi if you'll ask, but rather the Ramban says V'chi somru means when you'll ask. V'chi, when you'll ask. And why is the Ramban interpreting it that way? For lack of uh, time, I'll just tell it to you outside. Why is the Ramban interpreting it that way? Not if you'll ask, but when you'll ask. Because the Ramban wants to make it clear that those who ask, unlike the Svarno, that those who ask, it's not a reflection of a deficiency in them, but rather it doesn't come out of rebelliousness. You'll ask, you'll challenge Hashem. What will I eat? Where will you be, Hashem? Rather, it's coming out of a legitimate fear. It's not come out of rebelliousness. It's coming out of yira. It's come out of a legitimate anxiety and a legitimate fear. And you're going to have to overcome that with a sense of faith. The Ramban here is very validating. If you're going through what we're going through right now, it's very easy to say, have faith. Hashem will provide. This will end. 
and the economy will come roaring back and you'll have your job and you'll make up what you're missing. It's so easy to say that, but for the person who's been furloughed, who's been laid off, who doesn't know how they're paying their bills next month, there's a natural and an understandable fear that comes, says the Ramban. And therefore, v'chi somru is not if you'll say, but says the Ramban, it is when you'll say. The Sfasemis understands it a little bit differently. The Sfasemis understands it as not a physical fear, but a religious fear. V'chi somru, if you'll say, says the Sfasemis, who are we to merit that miracle? God's making a promise. The sixth year will produce enough for the sixth, seventh, and eighth year. So what if you have such a uh, lack of religious confidence? You're religiously um, underachieving, and you have religious lack of self-confidence. And you'll say, Hashem's not going to do miracles for us. V'chisomru. Hashem will never do. We're unworthy of His doing miracles for us. Says the Sfasemis, that's where it's coming from, and that's a mistake. Because what HaKadosh Baruch Hu is telling us is that even what looks like nature is in fact a miracle. Don't think that there are two separate worlds, the natural and the supernatural. The natural itself comes from Hashem. The natural itself is supernatural. And therefore, it is a, a religious mistake to say, says the Tzvah V'chi Somru, that if you'll say, I'm unworthy, I'm undeserving of Hashem doing a miracle, know that even nature is a miracle and He can provide through what seems to be a natural means, a natural means as well. Okay, continuing. Perch Pasuk Chav Gimel. Making our way now through the laws of Shemitah. Torah tells us, The land is not sold. Now we've moved over to Yovel. We don't have time to talk about it at length. Yovel, the 50th year, the Jubilee year, its laws, slaves go free. Land returns to its ancestral uh, um, ownership. Why? Because land is not sold in perpetuity. God says, lest you think it's yours, it's mine. It's mine. Because you are Gerim and Toshavim, together with me. Sojourners and residents, together with me. The Heilige Bnei Yisoscher, the Heilige Bnei Yisoscher says here on this pasuk, Gerim Toshava means Imadi. Whether you're Bebechinas Gerim or Bebechinas Toshavim, Imadi. When Jews are in Eretz Yisrael, Hashem is with them. And when we are Gerim, when we are in exile, Imadi, Hashem is with us. That part of our mission is to know wherever we are and whatever state we're in, always. Again, this continues with this theme of Amuna that permeates our parsha. That Gerim Imadi. Wherever we are and however we feel and whatever we're going through, He wants us to know Imadi. He's right next to us. He's with us. We are always together. Right after the laws of Shemitah, we go directly into What happens? Your brother. Your brother finds a hard time, becomes impoverished, and sells part of that ancestral land. The Redeemer should come redeem it for him. And if he doesn't have a Redeemer, that tells us the law. And then it tells us, going right from here into these other laws, if they are impoverished, if your brother becomes impoverished and he falls in your proximity, you have to strengthen him. Make sure that he can, and you enable him to live with you. What do you mean, v'chi yamuch? If he falls, if he becomes poor. Rabbi Soloveitchik points out that, you know, it's even harder to have your status changed 
to become poor, to find yourself impoverished than it was to be born that way. A person who was raised that way and lived that way, a person who never knew what it meant to be independent and to be of means, it's painful, it's difficult, but not as much as the person who finds themselves v'chiyamuch, they have fallen into a difficult situation. And that is supposed to invoke our greatest sympathy and empathy, is not only for the person who's always known that state, but the person who now falls and finds themselves in that state. And again, I think that is very uh, significant for the time we find ourselves in and looking around and seeing such people, that obligation and responsibility that we have. The Yimre Chaim, the Vishnitzer says here on this Pasuk, so this Pasuk is talking about physically, financially. They've fallen. Hardship. They don't know how they will provide. Step up and step in. It's our responsibility to step in and stand in to make sure that they can live with us. But both the Imre Chaim, the Vishnitzer, and the Ora Chaim, Rav Chaim Benatar, explain this in a very spiritual way. Listen to the Imre Chaim. When your brother is distorted in his judgment when your brother is far away from his heritage and hasn't lived a richly Jewish life. And now they're hopeless and helpless. They need faith. They're reaching out to you. We have a responsibility not only to provide physically, but to provide and meet the needs and inspiration religiously as well. Listen to it in the words of the Orachayim. We're on Pasuk Chafei, Pasuk Perek Chafei, Pasuk Lamedhei. We've fallen on hard times. The Orachayim says, Parsha Zutara Adam, Al Ruach Hashem Achenu. That neshama inside him or her has been extinguished. It's trying to hold on for dear life. It's on a it's on a respirator. The worst type of poverty is to be impoverished from Torah and mitzvos. It's our obligation to restore his soul or her soul, to give them back their spiritual life, to strengthen them. And why? Why should we do this? The Pasuk ends. You can't charge interest and so on and so forth. So the Rechaim says, We have to give back a chiyas, a liveliness, a joy, a hope, a faith, an aspiration. Why? Because if we realize that there's a tzelem elokim in every person, then we want to restore their soul because we're restoring Hashem in their soul. When you live with when you live with an awareness of the divine and a commitment and a devotion, a loyalty to the divine, then you'll want to restore the divine within the soul of the, within the soul of the other. What does it mean, they fell into poverty with you, and you have to strengthen them with you. What is this emphasis on? They fell into poverty with you, and you have to strengthen them with you. So I want to share with you an insight of the Shem and Atov, Rav Dov Zev, Rav Bernard Weinberger. I shared it with you before, but I find it so beautiful, I can't help but share it again. Why is it imach? To use twice this word imach, that he encountered, she encountered that hard time in proximity to you. Okay, so they were near me. I saw it. What's the big deal? 
So he says, based on an inside of the Baal Shem Tov, the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos says, Do malamala mimach, know what is above you. Ayin roa, the eye sees, ve'ozen shomas, and the ear hears, ve'chol ma'asecha b'sefer nechtavim, and all of your actions are recorded. So the Mishnah is usually translated to mean that there's accountability. You know, we're living this perhaps more than any other generation that came before because there's surveillance everywhere. Google Earth, satellites is taking video everywhere we go. Our computers, our phones are listening in on everything we do. And therefore, Ayin Roa, the ICs, Ozen Shomas. I don't know about you, how often are you having a conversation with someone about something you're thinking about buying, and then you go on your phone or your computer and you find all of a sudden you're seeing ads for exactly what you're talking about. That's not a coincidence. It's because it's all listening. Ayin Roa, Ozen Shomas. Everything, and your browser history and your computer and your phone are recording all that you're doing, what you're looking at, the Lashon Har that you're speaking. This Mishnah is more relatable to us perhaps than ever before. That's the simple understanding. It's about accountability. But the Baal Shem Tov, the great founder of Hasidus, explains it differently. And he says the Mishnah in Pirkei Yavos means the following. Know who and what is above you. There is a master. There is a creator of the universe. There is an omnipotent being who is divinely running the world. An omnipotent being. And therefore, therefore, this is his chiddush, therefore, ayin roe. What you see, you were meant to see. It's not a coincidence and it's not by accident. And ozen shomas, what you happen to overhear, you were meant to hear. And how you react and what you do with that, that will be recorded for posterity. That will reflect on who you are. So Rav Weinberger takes this inside of the Bashemtov who says that I and Roa, because know that there's a God above. So if you happen to see or you happen to hear, it's not a coincidence and you can't choose to ignore or walk away. It was by design. And how you react and how you respond and what you do will be recorded and will reflect on you. So Rav Weinberger applies this insight of the Bashem Tov to our Parsha. And he says, listen so beautifully, if a man becomes poor, and they're struggling in proximity to you, Strengthen him. Why? So that v'chai imach, he or she can live with you. Says Rav Weinberger, says the Shem you have to look at a person struggling socially or economically or religiously, and you have to say, imach, this wasn't a coincidence. The fact that it happened near you, you learned about it, you became aware of it, it happened near you, you saw it, you heard it, it wasn't a coincidence, it's not by chance, it's by design. Because, it happened by design. And therefore, so that you have an obligation to step up, and to stand in, and to be of influence, of support, to help. Kaddish Baruch is the one who diagrammed the intersection of our lives to empower and enrich us both the person who needs our help, and for us to get the satisfaction, the meaning, the purpose of providing that help. V'hechazakta, and then v'chayimach. You've renewed and re-energized them, but you've also renewed and re-energized yourself. And that's why it's imach. Hashem put them in your sphere of influence. He put them in your circle. He made you aware. You saw or you heard of him or her because you're meant to stand up and you're meant to make a difference in their lives. That is our responsibility. That is our obligation. And that is how he understands this Pasuk. That's how he understands this Pasuk. We're not allowed to take ribis from another person. We've talked about it in the past. We won't belabor now. You're not allowed to take ribis. You can't charge interest. Why not? The Ramban points out 
Go to Sefer Dvarim, Perach of Gimel, the Rambam points out, there the Torah doesn't only allow us to take ribbis, the Torah says you can or should sell, take ribbis interest from a non-Jew. So is interest unethical and wrong, then why can I do it to a non-Jew? If interest is permissible and ethical, then why can't I lend with interest to a Jew? And the answer is very clear. The answer is very clear. Because we're trying to cultivate and harness within ourselves the sense that all Jews are brothers and sisters, we're all family. I can lend to another human being, why? Because there's a time value to money. The amount of time that I'm without my money, my money can't be earning money. My money, I don't have the liquidity to spend my money. There's a time value to money that I'm losing out on. So when I in fact charge interest, I'm not making money, I'm simply getting back what I lost by not having that time value of that money. So it's completely ethical. So why can't I do it to a Jew? Because if my brother or sister asked for money, would I charge them interest? God forbid. That's what it means to be family. It's what it means to be fiercely loyal. And that's the attitude and mentality that we're meant to have with all Jews. They're all my brothers and sisters. We're all part of a family. And that's what the Pasuk says. Don't charge interest. By not charging interest, that's how we cultivate and that's how we harness an attitude and a mentality of achicha, that he is our brother within us. By Soloveitchik captures this very beautifully. And he says the following. The Torah emphasizes the calamity of becoming destitute. Sorry, not this comment. Following. The Gemara Bab Metziah Samach Beis teaches, if two are traveling on the, on the way, we know the story of Rabbi Kiva ben Petura. They have one canteen. It can only, only one can survive. If they share it, they're both going to die, and so on and so forth. And Rabbi Kiva's statement stresses the distinct character of imach. Your existence should be coordinated with your brother. imach. So on the one hand, there's achicha, and there's imach. First, you have to take care of your survival, and then the survival of another. As long as one is cognizant of the existence of others, one is characterized as a reya, an acquaintance or neighbor. But the very instant that one begins to perceive another, not just to know him, but to feel his existence, experiences, joys and frustrations, agonies and hopes, one turns from reya into ach, a brother. This is a higher degree of coexistence, of interrelatedness and companionship. Brothers are united by existential bonds, one destiny, one memory. In speaking of tzedakah, the Torah constantly employs the term ach, not reya. The precepts of Staka and Gamilas Chasadim are nurtured by the doctrine of the sympathetic brotherly open existence. In contrast, when the Torah speaks about civil law, not to inflict harm on someone, it says Reya. Lo Sachmon Beis Reecha. Lo Sasigvu Reecha. The fact that he is my neighbor imposes a duty and obligation. I should respect his property and his rights. I must not inflict any harm or damage. But it doesn't entitle the Reya to my support. That I share his troubles and be helpful. For that, the bond of Reya is too weak. You need the stronger bond of Ach. So the Rav calls our attention to the fact that sometimes the Torah calls, says Re'echa, and sometimes the Torah says Achicha, Ach. What's the difference? Re'echa means an acquaintance, a neighbor. And that governs the laws that I can't damage, I can't harm, I can't injure. But the positive, the notion that I have to rescue, that I have to step in, that I have to guard and protect, that I have to support, that is not dictated by the notion or the relationship of rea, of neighbor, acquaintance. That is dictated by the relationship of ach, of a being a brother, of a connection. Revolbe, the great mashkiach, uh, points out that if I have to v'chei achicha imach begashmias, 
If I have to provide for him physically, then I have to make space so there's room for Jews to live with me spiritually. I have to reach out and I have to make safe space and I have to support and I have to invite and I have to love uh, my fellow Jew, not only in the area of uh, physically in Gashmias, but in Ruchnias, in Ruchnias as well. Okay, let's move now over to Parshas Bechukosai. Parshas Bechukosai. We have a double Parsha, and we only have a little bit of time left. Parshas Bechukosai has in it, of course, the famous Tochacha. It has the harsh rebuke, Kaddish Baruch telling us uh, what is the consequence if we uh, are dismissive of our relationship with him or neglectful of that relationship. But before and we have the brachos, and we begin with a promise. If you walk in my ways, and you observe my mitzvahs, and you do them, then I'll give you rain in its time, and the land will produce, and you'll have continuity, and you'll live with peace, all things we so desperately crave. And it's the promise Hashem gives us when? The Chidush Arim points out, that here the Torah captures how are we meant to observe what is how are we meant to capture or characterize our Jewish lives and lifestyles in Bechukosai Telechu. It doesn't say in Bechukosai Ta'amodu Ta'amdu. If you stand firm in observing my laws, it says if you walk with my ways. Why says the Chidush Arim? Because a person is on a journey. We are forever evolving. We're growing. We're aspiring. We're elevating. We're climbing. The Malach angels are described as standing still. But human beings, we are growing. We're moving. We're changing, hopefully in the right direction. And that is why the entire uh, area, the entire description of Jewish law is called Halacha. Halacha comes Telechu. It's the same root. It means the journey, the, 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 the process. It means to be traveling. Telechu. The Torah uh, escorts us on our journey through life. We're not while we're standing still, but rather as we evolve as people, as we grow, and as we learn about ourselves, and as we reach higher and higher. Chidush Arim says, Bechukosai Telechu, not Tamdu, but Telechu. It's not about standing. Angels stand still, but human beings, we continue to evolve, we continue to grow, we continue to change, and that's what Torah is meant to do, is meant to do for us. Rabbi Salavechik, on these opening words, draws our attention to a very, very important, a very important idea. He says a Jew has two distinct sources of covenantal obligation. The first is a communal kedusha, which derives from the covenant of our Sinai and the covenant of the patriarchs. This is the subject of our parsha, signified by the fact that the blessings and curses are addressed in the plural. There's also a second covenant, based on each individual's kedusha, a covenant detailed in Parsha's Kisavo. The wording of this covenant is in the singular. He says this tochacha, the tochacha in our parsha is going to be Belashen Rabbim, in the plural, because it reflects the responsibility we have towards one another. And then there's also a second tochacha in Parsha's Kisavo that is communicated in the singular because it speaks about the individual holiness. We need both covenants because we are chosen in two distinct ways. One aspect of our chosenness relates to being the progeny of Avram, and it is for this aspect we recite the blessing was not made me a Gentile. A second chosenness comes through the study of Torah, reflecting in the bracha, this chosenness involves a higher sanctification. By understanding the duality of our Kedusha, we can explain a puzzling area of Jewish law. The halachic, the halachic status of a Jew who renounces a religion is complex. Although his status as a Jew is compromised, it does not entirely disappear. With regard to specific halachas, an apostate Jew is considered different from a non-Jew. 
On the other hand, if he betrothes a woman, his betrothal is valid. So how do you understand this contradiction? The apostate Jew retains the sanctity afforded through his lineage, a heritage that cannot be renounced no matter what he does. This kedusha applies equally to the apostate as it does to the greatest of rabbis. The second kedusha is dependent on the sanctity of the individual, attainable only through limad Torah. This apostate has renounced the second kedusha. The holiday of Shavuos is associated with the communal kedusha, and for this reason, Parshas Bechukosai is read prior to Shavuos. The acceptance of the blessing and the curses by Bnei Yisrael was in the form of a shvua, a oath. The Torah itself was accepted by the oath of Nasav and Ishma. These parallel oaths form another reason we read Parshas Bechukosai prior to Shavuos. The Rav here has developed what he calls elsewhere, we have two covenants, we have two forms of a relationship with Hashem, two promises, what he calls bris avos, and bris sinai. Only the Rav formed it so beautifully. Bris avos is the connection and the relationship, the bond I have with all Jews. Whether they're religious or non-religious, whether they practice or don't practice, whether they have a background or, or no education, there's a bris avos. We share the same genetic material, religious, spiritual, genetic material. We both come from, we all come from Avon Yitzhak and Yaakov, Sarif, Garachal, and Leah, and that creates a bond, a bris avos, a connection that we have. There's also a Kedusha sanctity that comes from a bris sinai. I stood at our sinai and I accepted the yoke of Torah and the commitment to learn and to live Torah. They're two separate and overlapping sanctities I have through my commitment and acceptance of the bris avos, and my commitment and acceptance of the bris Sinai. Sadly in our time, my dear friends, sadly in our time, little editorial comment, we have segments of the Jewish community who are committed to the bris avos, Jewish unity, Jewish connection, Jewish live and let live, Jewish, um, the, the Jewish diversity, but they're not committed to bris Sinai, to the binding authority of Torah and mitzvahs, the non-negotiable nature of halacha, the kedusha that comes through our commitment to Torah and mitzvahs. And then we have a community who are vigilantly committed to, to bris Sinai. They observe Torah and mitzvah scrupulously. And yet, it's as if they're entirely unaware that there's something called the bris avos. Reform and conservative and irreligious and irreligious Jews are also part of our family and our people and our nation. We have a shared history and a shared destiny. And unfortunately, it's only, it's too few who live in both of these brisim, who live both of these covenants, and who live with both of these uh, kedushas simultaneously, that there are, is a bris avos and there's a bris sinai. I have a commitment and a covenant with both. I have to see and live both of these. My uh, brother, Rabbi Dr. Judah Goldberg, is actually putting out a book on exactly this topic, bris avos and bris sinai, as seen through Torah and through practice. I highly recommend it, though it's not out yet. You can read it online on uh, Gush, the virtual base measures, VBM. He's been putting them out as essays. It'll be combined as a book. But this beautiful notion here the Rav introduces at the beginning of Parsha's Bechukosai, in Bechukosai Teilechu. And the Parsha has both Kedushos, has both covenants, the notion of bris avos and bris sinai. That's why it introduces Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. We have to remember the relationship we have with all the other progeny and descendants of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, the bris avos, and also the kedusha, the sanctity that comes from the fact that we stood at Har Sinai and we're obligated also in a sense of a, of a bris Sinai. Okay, one more point, and then we'll end. Perach of Zayim, Pasuch of Aleph, is in the Tochacha. And the Tochacha tells us Again, we have this notion of telchu. We're on this journey in life, and we can either be walking with God, or we can be walking neglecting God, maybe walking on God, trampling upon Him. So the Torah tells us, If you walk with me, what does it mean to walk with God? 
bikeri. What does it mean to walk with him bikeri? So Rashi says, keri is lashon mikra. In telchui mi bikeri, bikeri is lashon mikra. I lost the place. Where is the in telchui mi bikeri? Sorry, it's not Perach of Zion Pasuk Chaf Aleph. In Telchimi Bekeri, Rashi says, what is Keri? Lashon Mikra. What is Lashon Mikra? Mikra means casual. If we walk in our attitude, Perach Vav Pasuk Chaf Aleph. Thank you so much, Mark Blechner, our great sponsor. Shabbos Light of last week's Behind the Bima. Perach Vav Pasuk Chaf Aleph. Thank you for that correction. If you walk with me with Kerry and you don't listen to me, then this is what's going to happen. Zakdarashi, what does it mean you walk with me with Kerry? It's, it's, it's casual, a casual attitude, a casual relationship, a casual uh, interconnection with Hashem. The Rambam understands differently. The Rambam in Hilchos Tainus, in Perak Aleph, Halacha Aleph, the Rambam describes what Kerry is. He says, chance. He says a fast day, the notion of a fast day is to recalibrate our compass and to realize that there's no chance or coincidence in life. Everything is from Hashem. Everything is from Hashem. So Revolba says, you know, you know where else we see the word keri? A bal keri. Bal keri is a description of a person who encounters tumah. Someone becomes contaminated. Someone becomes impure. Someone becomes tamay. When is described as keri, a bal keri. Keri leads to tumah. Why does Kari lead to Tumah? So Ravob applies both the interpretation of Rashi and the Rambam. If you're casual in your relationship and your attitude to God, we have an audience and we are the offspring of the Almighty, of the King of Kings. And if we're casual in our identity and casual in that opportunity and that audience and that relationship, it leads to carry, it leads to impurity. And for the Rambam, if we interact with God in a way that we think what happens in our lives is chance and coincidence and happenstance, then that leads to Tumadika life. It's an impure life. A holy, pure life is not to be casual in our attitude and relationship with Hashem. A holy and pure life is not to see it as chance. In fact, the Rambam says there that in the beginning of Hilchastanius, the Rambam writes that if your attitude is with Hashem, that carry and Mikra, that chance and coincidence and casual, it's an act of cruelty. Why is it cruel? It's cruel to God to ascribe what happens as chance rather than as seeing it coming from him. So my brother-in-law, oh, quoting a lot of family today, my brother-in-law, Joseph Hellerstein, actually said back in my Sheva Brachas just a few years ago, he said, what it means it's cruel is the following. If someone's calling your name, someone's screaming, and you ignore them, it's cruel. Someone's trying to get your attention, and you're ignoring their attempt to get your attention. You're in the other room, you hear them calling you, and you're willfully ignoring them. It's literally cruel. If you've ever called someone and you know they hear you and you see they hear you, but they're not turning towards you, it's cruel. So he suggested maybe that's what the Rambam means. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu interacts with us in our lives, he's calling our name. He's communicating with us. And when we don't listen and we don't respond and instead we dismiss it as being chance or coincidence, that too is an act of cruelty. That leads to a life of Tummah, Keri. If we want Tahara, a life of purity, then you can't be casual and you don't dismiss his chance. We look and we see Hashem all around us, all in our lives. 
and uh, wishing everyone a beautiful and a holy Lag Baomer. I forgot I was going to talk all about Lag Baomer too, but we're out of time. A beautiful and a holy Lag Baomer. A wonderful week. If you're watching on YouTube, do me the favor of subscribing to our channel on YouTube, even if you're not. Do me the favor of going on YouTube to Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg and subscribing. It would be a great help. Wishing everyone a beautiful and a wonderful day.